Welcome to the One Solution Podcast. In this podcast, we're going to explore if there really is one solution to all the world's problems. And that perhaps that solution lies in the mind. The mind is both the source of those problems, but also the solution to those problems. Welcome. We are really, really excited to do this webinar. Uh, it's going to be the first of three. So we're going to have one today, one next week, and one, I think, two weeks after that. So uh, we're going to do the best we can to kind of do what we can in this hour. But don't worry, if you still have questions, you can join the webinar next week and the following webinar. I can stop saying hi to everyone individually. It's just hard when I see it pop up. I'm like, hey. <laughs> yeah. And today, the focus of today is, the title of it, of it is Being Human and the World. Human beings. Human beings world. is kind of the same thing. <laughs> really. the same, yeah. yeah. And why, why do we want to talk about that more? Well, we're doing these three webinars um, because... This is these are topics that have been really interesting to us and really helpful for us as we have launched our nonprofit and really embarked on a journey of looking at um, how can we ignite change in the world on any scale with more effectiveness and doing it in a more sustainable way. And we feel like we've learned a lot about that over the last few years. Um but I would say especially in the last year and a half or so. And it really kept occurring to us that there are so many people out there that are interested just either as a human being, a participant in life, or also as a human that's really interested in, well, how can I be a part of making change? Or maybe you're already in the change field and you're looking at what are some new skills I can gain to help me do that better or help help it go faster or frankly, um, be more enjoyable. So we launched an online course um, just a couple weeks ago, just the beta version within our membership, and we're going to be launching it live to the public um, the second week of April. But what has been really encouraging and exciting, seeing the feedback from the members who are going through it so far, is we've seen a lot of comments about, you know, it's been really hard for me to watch the news I feel very kind of either anywhere from apathetic or helpless to depressed about a lot of the things going on in the world. And I couldn't really see how I as a human being could participate in the world in a helpful way. And this course is helping me to see hope and potential for me to be a participant in making change in the world. So I think that hope and potential and clarity and simplicity that people gain from learning about the mind as the source of change in the world is really why we wanted to do more of this, why we wanted to do the online course, but then also why we wanted to do these free webinars for anyone who's interested. Because in a way, it's like if you could take all seven and a half billion people on the planet and kind of spark that hope and clarity and enthusiasm about participating in the state of the world in a more productive way, then I think we'd have a pretty awesome world. Right. Not that we don't already. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I don't want to sound like I think <laughs> you're not okay I, with what this. Yeah. No. Yeah. There's a tremendous amount of beauty in the world, and I and I couldn't be more grateful for that. But then I also think, for all of us, we look at several things in the world and we wonder, come on, there's got to be a better way, or how can I help? And um, these webinars and the online course are designed to specifically answer that. Right. 
And and the reason why we're interested in looking at the mind is like, especially after we started our nonprofit, we've been meeting a lot of other people trying to make change, you know, whether it is, you know, violence, whether, whether it is poverty, homelessness, addiction, systemic racism systemic and inequality, inequality, uh, war, whatever it is, we just see so many people doing so much amazing stuff. Uh, some of them, you know, a little bit burned out, to mm-hmm. be honest. Uh, some of them really hopeful, some of them not so hopeful. So we've seen like what makes these nonprofits work and what is kind of their leverage point. And when we look at them, we see that the people who have who, in a way, in their bones, in their feeling, and just the, the way they're being, understand certain things about themselves and about the people they're working with, get a lot better results, a lot more connection, and a lot more, uh, you know, freedom, and sometimes even joy and hope while they're doing what they're doing. And that's what we've experienced too with, with ourselves: is that if the mind and the human dimension isn't there when trying to make change we're missing in our opinion probably all of the cake but uh at least for some of you it would be a piece of the cake Mm -hmm. and hopefully by the end of this webinar you'll go oh actually it's a quarter of the cake or maybe even half of the cake or whatever it is so we if we can move you along to see how important it is to look at what is inside human beings or what is what are we a part of? What do we have going for us? How does kind of our mind work? When we look at that, it simplifies and helps whatever you're up for, uh, up to in the world. Because this webinar is not about how to do certain things or how to make certain type of change. It's just looking at change almost like a phenomenon. Like if you guys would be like our, our uh, study pals for this one and look like, what is this phenomenon of change? How does it happen? What makes it grow and what stops it? And we're going to try to give our attempt at that. And hopefully you can uh, add yours or uh, ask questions in the comments. Uh, we want this to be uh, interactive. We are going to spend some time talking first. And then at the end, we'll go through all the questions and you can uh, we'll answer them as best, as best we can. Yeah. And I just wanted to say one other um, example that really hit home with me when um, we were in Israel and the West Bank and Gaza back in October, November of last year. And we had the really fortunate opportunity to sit down with a group of international development organizations in Gaza. So they were all different international development organizations working there. It wasn't a single one. It was kind of a um, a, a uh, a delegation of several different nonprofit organizations, NGOs that were in the region in Gaza, um, trying to help with the situation there. And it was really interesting because just in what was it like two, two hours? Yeah, two hours, two and a half hour session, kind of a lunch session that we did with them. When we went around the table and heard from all these different humans from different backgrounds, different countries. There was uh, Norwegian People Aid was there. Some Gaza-based organizations were there. So um, Muslim, Christian, different languages. If, what, what was, Everything, yeah. Yeah, kind of a, a real diverse mix of people around the table, but all there for the sole purpose of providing aid 
in Gaza. And when we went around the table and kind of asked them about, you know, what were their challenges and what would they like to get out of this lunch session with us? What was fascinating, but also not surprising, is people brought up their own struggles. They brought up things like, you know, I'm so tired at the end of the day, and I really know I should go to a yoga class or something, (laughs) (laughs) but I don't because as many times as my friend tells me, you got to go check out this yoga studio. And what was really interesting is in that one case, she said, it's both that I don't really have the energy. And I also realized I've developed a bad attitude about anything inside the walls of Gaza. It's like, ugh, like yoga in Gaza. But she said, if if the person was telling me, hey, I, I can get you out, we can go over the border and go to a yoga class and Israel, then I'd be like, oh, more. And she said, I'm realizing I'm kind of turning into the same mentality as a lot of the people here. There's just kind of this feeling of trappedness that anything that exists in Gaza isn't good enough. It's not exciting enough. It's it's less than. And she said, and I, I'm kind of admitting as I'm saying this out loud that that's a big part of what we see with the clients we're working here is there's a hopelessness about Gaza. And I'm starting to become hopeless about Gaza to the point that I won't even go to a yoga class in Gaza, even though I know it'd be good for me. Right. <laughs> and that woman was just one example. And 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 different men were talking about, you know, kind of the ni- dynamics within their organization and and feeling like, how can we get more done? And But it fascinated me because it was not unlike any group I've ever worked with in a for-profit corporation in the United States that makes wine or, um, you know, a group of teachers at a public elementary school here in Chicago. It's like, if you ever sit down with a group of humans that are really trying to do good work in the world, trying to help children in a school in Southside Chicago or trying to help people living inside Gaza, anytime you ask them about their challenges, ultimately what you hear about is their human beingness. Because that's what they're up against. That's what all of us are up against. And so I share that story only because there was part of me that kind of almost, I think, expected to hear more things about the blockade and, you know, the politics. And people didn't really bring that up. They really brought up things they were struggling with in their own mind that they could tell were limiting them in terms of how they could feel in life and how they could be capable and productive and helping the situation there. So it really struck me, no matter where you go in the world, no matter what people are up to, no matter what kind of change they're trying to make, if we can help people with their own minds, then we can unleash everything. Right. And I was just thinking with those bigger things it's it's so visible like if that's like oh that's too big i haven't been to gaza i can't really i don't know too much of that situation or about these bigger challenges just look to when you talk with your friend or you talk with uh someone in your business or you talk with a colleague or you talk with someone in in a smaller scale you'll you'll say the same thing you'll ask like someone's struggling and you say like what's going on and what they will explain will probably have certain things in this there would be a certain situation around it but past the situation there's a there's the same human process going on it's the same thing we're all struggling with no matter the scale like that's what's so fascinating to us and that's why we feel so hopeful to create change at any scale because if you take away the external situation and you just go to the humanness of it you'll see 
oh, we're doing the same thing. We're all kind of struggling with the same kind of emotions, the same kind of problems, really. It just looks very different because it looks very different. You know, that's the only reason why it looks different. It's not because it, it is different. Right. At, the, at the fundamental source of it, you know, a, a person in Norway, uh, I'm just using Norway as an example, who's suffering because uh, they failed an exam could experience the same kind of suffering as someone who lost, you know, their mother at a different place in the country or someone who's in war. Suffering is not a situational thing, really. It is something that that humans can be can feel no matter what. And to me, that's like what really unifies us. That's why I can relate to suffering anywhere, not because of the situation. I can't relate to the situation, but I can relate to the humanness of it. That I, I have the same ability to feel as you have. And that allows us to keep it very fundamental and also move freely in any situation because we're bringing the human dimension. We're not discussing the, the situation of it. Because for that, we are so beyond, it's so beyond our pay grant and knowledge and experience. Because if we really was trying to make change, then, then we had to learn everything under the sun. We had to learn every situation ever. And that's, you know, seven billion situations. There, it's, it's just too complex out there. If we try to fix everything by looking at those things and understanding all those things separately. But if you look at, oh, it's the same process going on everywhere, it just looks different then suddenly you're like, oh, I can do that. I, I can I can help someone anywhere in any situation then because I'm human, he's human, that's it. So that's the kind of like the fundamental basics of what we want to start with is like, as soon as we look beyond the situation and to the humanness of us all, change becomes easier, uh, it becomes like something that is within our grasps. As soon as we look outside, we'll start like, oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. That's too complex. That's not too. But if you look at those complex things out there, they came from the same humanness that you have. They are basically things that we have collectively or individually made up, uh, put into the world and now live in the effect of, you know? But we forget the first part. We we only remember the effect part. We were feeling the effects of what we have created. That's what we say. Oh, this is happening. We don't see like, oh, this is actually coming from us humans. We are actually, we created these systems. We created this pattern of behavior. We created, it, it all came from us. Not you personally, but from this potential to create, from this ability for humans to create anything, really, anything that comes to our mind, we can put into the world. That's an amazing potential. But if we forget that, well, if if we create it, we got to live in it. It's kind of like you, you got to sleep in the, the bed, bed you make, you, you know, yeah. it's, it's that kind of thing. So to us, it's amazing how little we look at just the simple fact that we're creating all this stuff. And we're not we're not looking at that. We're trying to cope with it when it comes back to us. So we, we send the boomerang out. It smacks us in the head and like, oh, God, we're going to stop that boomerang. We'll stop sending it. You know, <laughs> it's that kind of thing. 
I just wanted to quickly note that she says the sound is low, although someone else sounds says sounds great. So I don't know if it's just on yeah. her end, but if you want to tinker with the volume, yeah, we, we can we can adjust it. Okay, let us know if it doesn't get better, Shirley. Um, yeah, I was thinking there was a quote I heard once at an event we went to here in Chicago um, that was the biggest threat to the environment is the belief that someone else will fix it. And I think you can just generalize that statement. And and one of the sort of beta participants, one of our members that's uh, been taking the, the online course so far said almost exactly that. She said, I used to think the problems in the world were too complex for me, that someone else would need to deal with it. And I think that's really at the crux of what we're going to kind of get into and why we start with the human mind is because the biggest threat to any problem is the belief that someone else is going to do something about it because it immediately takes your mind out of the equation and says, not not my problem or not to do with me or too big for me. Right. Um, and, and that's a tragedy in the sense of it's a waste of the human potential because, in fact, every single human on the planet is a part of participating in what is existing in the world. And we might not see it because it's not visible. Like Adik said, we kind of... It might have been sort of something that we grew up thinking without even realizing we're thinking, and so we're participating in it unknowingly or unconsciously, but that's what I love, and that's why I love that it does instantly almost kind of shine a light on how what's in the world today is a reflection of our minds and how if we can see that, then we can participate in it and how hopeful that is. So just as kind of a a first point in this webinar is the the ability for uh, us to, when we're looking at the world, to appreciate that every last thing in the world that we experience really starts with the seedling of the mind that we have put it into place. And I love, I know I can reference it because a lot of people have probably either heard of it or maybe even read it. But last summer I read, read that book by um, Dr. Yuval Noah Harari. Uh, called Sapiens. Um, and then he's written a few other books since then that have also become bestsellers. But when I read that book, I was like, oh, this is awesome. This is basically an academic, scientific, expl historical explanation of what I've always felt and seen to be true. But he's really kind of broken it down as looking at from the dawn of humankind, from the first Homo sapiens, the thing that sort of made us unique as a species. And I won't get into the, you know, ethno history biology of it all, but that basically what humans can do is imagine. And I loved that word because I've always described it as thought that basically what we think is what we put into the world, but he describes it as imagination and that we were able to create things that didn't exist in the world, but because we could use our imagination and we had relationships with other humans, and we could essentially draw them into our imagined ideas and get them to agree with them, that then we created culture and societies and systems. And he gives a, a million and one different really cool, exciting examples. I highly recommend the book. But, you know, he kind of, and this is one that, you know, people talk about, but the, the fact that money is made up and, and that that's what our entire financial system is based on is money. And he talks about, you know, it started with gold and then it turned into these pieces of paper. But if you look at the actual material of gold, 
it's not a great material. <laughs> it's not actually, in terms of what it could do for human beings, um, it's not particularly durable. It's relatively soft. It doesn't, like you said, you know, there's, we made up that gold has more value than, say, steel um, or copper or, you know, and how arbitrary that was. But then because we have this amazing power as homo sapiens to imagine the value of gold and then get through relationships and communication, people to agree on this imagined definition of value, that from there we could build an entire financial system. And, you know, when the, when the, the dollar stopped being tied to actual gold sitting reserves and banks anymore. That one always cracked me up. Like when I learned that in high school economics, it was like, wait, so you mean our money, those pieces of paper aren't really based on anything? Nah, we just print them. (laughs) I just pictured some huge computer printer being like, yeah, we need some more money. Print, print. And then, you know, we have things like debt. But again, what is debt? Debt is not something that you can set on a table. You have to imagine the concept of debt, debt, and then get people to agree that okay, that's how we're gonna balance out this system of what we what money we've produced and what's real and what's not and who owes what to who. And so well, I only get can that. I give it a, a more basic example? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. So uh, in terms of the money thing, to really show how this could work, like let let let's imagine that I got a thought appears in my head that this has some kind of value. This cup. Like, it's just not, not just a cup. It's just like this. I imagine that this has the worth of, what could it be a worth of? Um, uh, a sofa. We'll say a sofa or something like that <laughs> for the go. house. So A cup with the worth of a sofa. With I the like worth it. of so No, but, but that's the thing. Like, it sounds right. ridiculous, but... I imagine like this is the worth of a sofa and I would sell people if on the idea. If it was a Chanel like, mug, it might be worth that much. Right. Chanel is fancy mugs. <laughs> right. But let's say this was a material that I just figured out. It wasn't durable. It was just like, oh, this is something new. So mm-hmm. so I'm going to I'm gonna say this has this value. So I'll go tomorrow. I'll say like, hey, do you want this cup? Like it's, wor- it's worth a, a sofa. Do you want it? And like I would work as as good I can for her to see the value of it. And then we would be two people agreeing that this has a certain value in a way. A cup has a certain value and that we would recruit people. And then if we had kids, our kids, we would tell them and they wouldn't even need to learn them. They would just grow up with the idea that this is worth a fancy mug. It's a fancy mug. It's worth 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 the sofa. And so when they grow up, it, it's it's not even something you learn learn in a way. It's just so obvious. And after a couple of generations, th- this is just the value. This is just what it is. But if you look at, if you track it b- back, it was imagined. It's imagination. The value exists in our common imagination. We agree on the same thing being real. Okay. Without that, this has no value at all. It only has the value we imagine it to have. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the number one. But if you look at another thought, let's say I have a thought, I'm feeling down one day. I'm feeling really bad for some reason. And I look at whatever it is, a woman, or a woman calls me, or I look at Mar, whatever it is. Or let's say, let's say you, you lost your job. I lost my job. 
All and right. you see on the news that immigrants are getting jobs in the States. Right. Not I, you. Okay, not I me. I guess you're an immigrant. <laughs> I have Everyone, an that doesn't work as well. <laughs> right, exactly. I have an immigrant. Pretend you're in Norway. Other immigrants, okay. yeah. Sorry, sorry. So, and I'm feeling bad. And, and the idea will come in my mind that I'm feeling so bad and these other people are getting jobs and I'm not. They must be the problem. Mm-hmm. Okay, they must be the problem because I'm feeling bad and they have what I don't have. Okay, so I got like, God damn it, I feel so bad. It's because of these people. They're they're taking stuff from. They're taking the job, whatever it is. So I start to get angry and whatever it is, and then I go to Mara again and like, can you believe this? I'm so mad because these people are like this and they do this, and that's why we are in the situation we're in. Okay, she's she's with me, and we start creating our little group. Our kids will likely grow up with the unknown knowledge that these people are bad. Okay. They would just feel it. They would just like, just in the way, way we we're talk, being, in the yeah. way we talk about them, how we view them. Like we don't hang out with those. Oh no, those people are not, are not like us. They're different and so on. And after generation, th- there's this us versus them being created, but it all started with, it birthed it. The seed was a- an idea that appeared. Okay where we made correlations for how we feel and why things are the way they are. And we put them on some kind of, seem, to me, it's random. You might not agree with but seemingly random thing out there that we, that we explain why the situation is, is like it is. And that, to me, explains not only money, but explains how racism occurs. It explains how all kind of like us versus them phenomenon occurs. That idea that a little thought kind of like in the in the movie inception like it's something is plant you get an idea out of nowhere and it 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 appears in your mind and it seems real to you and out of that hopefully i'll keep it to myself and i'll just live life with that myself but when we get into trouble is that we are connected like we are humans we're very social species so we 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 these imaginations the they add up and if they're destructive, we're going to make some extreme destruction. And if they're beautiful, we're going to create some beautiful things. It, right. it gets amplified, whatever we imagine. I want to give a beautiful example just to balance it out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then we can move on to the next point. But um, I'm rereading the book, Devil in the White City, uh, which is about Chicago, which we live in Chicago and in the, in the late 1800s during the World's Fair. And it's a fascinating example of what humans are capable of in brilliant ways when the seed gets planted of, we want to create something magnificent in a short amount of time. And everyone says it's impossible. You don't have enough time. You don't have enough money. You don't have enough knowledge. Like even the, the, the very basic understandings of engineering and architecture at that time At that time, there were no skyscrapers in Chicago, for example, because the soil was considered way too um, temperamental to be able to build up. Uh, It was sort of like swamp with something equivalent to quicksand right underneath it. So it was the idea of building large buildings seemed impossible to people. And yet what I love about that book, not to mention the whole side story about the um, serial killer, but that's a different part of the book. And it does. The book kind of contrasts this light and this dark going on at this period of time in Chicago, which was very exciting. But the the architects and the designers and even the um, the landscape architects 
were so motivated to outperform Paris, who had had the first World's Fair a couple years before. And that had led to the creation of the Eiffel Tower. The Eiffel Tower was like revealed in the World's Fair in Paris. And so there was so much um, mental energy and creativity and innovation and bandwidth put behind, we have to create something phenomenal that no one's ever seen before. And we've got to outdo Paris. And the the innovation that came out of such a short period of time because the human mind went for it, wanted it so badly. Right. And any kind of, and there were so many different hiccups along the way where they thought the whole thing was going to fall apart. It was going to be a disaster. They weren't going to pull it off. It was, they didn't have the budget. They didn't have the know-how. And yet they did. You should read the book, but it's like, in that period, architects figured out what they needed to do engineering-wise to be able to create skyscrapers. Someone built the first ever Ferris wheel. If you've ever seen a Ferris wheel, that was kind of their huge reveal that was, you know, paralleled the Eiffel Tower. The fact that people could get inside of these little buckets that were all windows and go around this enormous wheel, that had never been done before. And engineering-wise, they didn't think it was possible. They didn't think it was safe. And yet they pulled it off. And uh, at that time, actually, I would have loved to have been on a Ferris wheel like this back I, in I the, wouldn't, I wouldn't. the late 1800s. But they had full bars with bartenders Ooh, inside yeah. the little buckets. Yeah. You know, yeah, you remember when we went to the Ferris wheel downtown in Chicago. There's still one there, obviously not the original, but a new one. And they said, yeah, people used to sit in there and have cocktails and enjoy the view of the city going around the circle. But I love that the human mind is capable of that. Just like the human mind can be capable of creating, you know, racism and divisiveness and classism and all of those things, right. we're also cre incredibly creative and able to create things that no one thought was possible in short a short amount of time with without a lot of resources or certainly not the resources they thought were required. So just to kind of show uh, the other side of what we mean by the human mind being at the source of everything that gets created in the world. It's, it's the source of the beauty and the genius, and it's the source of the hell and the conflict and the misery. It's the source of all of it. Right. And it's not like uh, using the generational example. What what I love is the ability to also rethink whatever is true. So that example of like someone learning about racism, suddenly there's a kid and he's like, what are you talking about? Right. He's like, we're not, we're not different. Like, what are you talking about? And the people around, like, what are you talking about? This is just how it is. He's like, no, it's not. It's not how it is. Actually, we're kind of the same. So suddenly, you will see this very ingrained idea. People say, oh, it's systemic. It's societal. You can't escape it. It's just how it is. It's just yeah. how it is. It just starts to move, and it becomes, and it turns back, and you can see that, oh. It isn't there. It doesn't have to take a long time. As soon as someone like flips it, it spreads again in the opposite direction, and and it and it takes over. And people start, oh, now that I look at it, it doesn't really make sense anymore. It looks kind of crazy. And generation after generation, you will see that 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 idea will transform the whole thing. So it has a very positive effect too. Is that there are a lot of things that we feel like is systemic or ingrown or well, like won't ever change. Like there's a very hopelessness about Chicago, certain conflicts in the world. You would say, oh, this will never change. 
but if you look in history, things aren't like they always were. There, there, there are wars that are no longer existing. There are things that happen that people got over. There are so many things that have happened that feel like, oh, this is just how it is. It's systemic. It's built in. And then some kind of either small thought or revolution or renaissance or something happened where people rethink, they reimagine. They're like, what you have imagined so far doesn't make sense. We got to go and see something new. So that is to me is the hopeful idea of this is that it isn't really built into any system because the system is... We're holding it in place with our minds. Right. It's a human thing. The system is not a thing. It's something that is is imagined. And if it's imagined, we can reimagine. So whatever is out there, it can be recreated. That's the, that's the coolest thing about this is that if we look at how actually that happens, it can be recreated. And it has been. It always been, always will be like this. So, by the way, if you have any questions so far, uh, write them down and we'll we'll get to them. We'll continue, but write the question. I see a lot of people saying, "Hey," and I'm glad that the, the sound, sound better. is better. <laughs> That's great. Um, That's a good start. But if you have any questions so far, if not, we'll 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 keep going. So we're just going to discuss a couple, really, just two other points. Um, in this initial webinar, and like we said, we'll have two more where we'll kind of get more into different areas of change, like whether you're looking at grassroots and community change or systemic change. But just for the starting point, um, you know, we're going to kind of shine a light on two of the points that we've observed are universally true for human beings and that are helpful to know when going into any situation, helpful to know about life period, helpful to know about yourself and helpful to know about people because it means you will approach any kind of change from a different foundation. Right. And you have to realize the foundation is, we, we build upon a foundation. So whatever your foundation is, that's kind of what you're stuck with. You go from there. So if the foundation is a little bit insecure or has a few too many exceptions or concerns in it, it's going to be a wobbly structure going up from there, right? So these next couple points, one being that resilience is innate to all life and that human beings create their unique experience of life via their own thinking, but beyond the difference of our thinking, we're all the same. Those two, really kind of two and a half points, those two to three points, um, we've seen as helpful for us as a foundation when looking at the world and looking at change in the world. Does that make sense? How do you say it? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to go? Well, I was going to keep going, but not if you have something to say. Keep going. So I was just going to go into Brazilian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I have to, I have just, I can only speak for myself, right? But I have been increasingly educated about how resilience is innate to all life and that that is not um, conditional. It's not personal. Like I wouldn't say um, some humans are resilient and some aren't, or some are born resilient, but then over time that resilience gets uh, eroded because of certain uh, situations or the kinds of parents they had or, and I know it can look that way. And I absolutely have thought that at times, but 
um, I've actually been most amazed and impressed by how once made visible in people that that resilience is built into all life, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment, that they kind of, there's almost this spark of knowing in them that goes, oh yeah, I knew that. I knew that. I knew that about myself. I knew that was true for me too. I might have forgotten, um, but I knew that. And they can think back on experiences that are proof to them. But what I mean by resilience is innate to all life is, um, you know, I think humans sometimes we we can't help it, but we do ourselves a little bit of a disservice by thinking we're special or different from the rest of nature or the rest of life, meaning like um, the entire planet is alive. You know, that if you watch, like we watched, was it Blue Planet 2? Blue Planet, yeah. Yeah, Blue Planet 2 last night. I love nature shows, um, probably because I love David Attenborough's voice, but also <laughs> because it's so fascinating. Like, yeah, last night in the episode we were watching, he was talking about this kind of fish that every morning he has a routine. It looked just like a human. Like, you know, going every morning you go to walk, you go for a walk right. and get your coffee on the way to work. Well, this one fish every morning, he leaves his little home, comes out of his little coral cave, and he goes over to this place and he starts digging around. And amazingly, with his mouth and his fins, he starts pushing debris, you know, little sticks and rocks and things out of the way until he finds a single clam. And he gets the clam and he takes it back to his little fish house. And he has this one hard surface on the little coral reef that's around his house. And he takes his mouth and he bangs the clam up against that hard surface. With his mouth. With his mouth. He smashes it. For many times... you know, falls out of his mouth. He misses sometimes, but he does it over and over and over again until the clam opens and that's that's his breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) It was so cute because it was so human-like. But, you know, people, we don't think of fish as being ingenious. You know, I think people even say sometimes dumb as a goldfish. Like, but it was so, you know, I watch shows like that and I'm so mesmerized by the intelligence in all of life. And, I think resilience, if you look at how it's built into life, is fascinating that, um, you know, I was explaining in one of the lessons on the online course that my parents live in California. Well, my whole family now lives in California, my brothers and sisters too. And there's been a lot of wildfires in California. And just two summers ago, there was a really bad one that came very, very close to where my parents have their house. And so when you drive to their house and you drive along this road, you just see on either side of the road black because it got completely burnt. And what's always shocking is this, this so much destruction and and just death. You just see every it killed everything in its path. And then within a very short amount of time life life starts to come back. Like new growth pops through. I would think by the look of it that it would be years before you'd see any green coming through that. Half a season later, there's new life coming through. It's like, no kidding. You're already regrowing. Good for you. Right. <laughs> it feels like. And, and you can see this in all forms of nature that life is almost like a force to be reckoned with. It's always coming through that in a way, life is inevitable. It, 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 and, and it's, it's innate. It's built in. So destruct. while destruction is also inevitable part of life, resilience is an inevitable part of nature. It's in everything. We can see it. Coral reefs get just destroyed. But once we stop doing whatever is the destroying force, the life comes back kind of thing. And then if you look at biology 
it's the same thing. It's fascinating because, um, you know, I can give lots of examples, but the, the human body is constantly striving for health and balance and homeostasis. So, and stuff is always dying. Yeah, your cells are regenerating. I think, you know, every kid has that like, what <laughs> moment when they learn that none of the cells in their body are the same as the ones when they were born right. because cells have been kind of dying and being regenerated. So every seven years, my skin is completely new, but I don't see it doing that. It's like, I don't know, it looks like the same skin as before, although it is getting a little older. But, <laughs> but you know, you have a wound, the wound will heal. You have a flu, the flu wants to heal. Um I was giving the example that you can smoke for years and years and years, and yet amazingly, the second you quit smoking, these mechanisms in your lungs start to heal. And within a much shorter period of time than you would think, the lungs begin to completely heal themselves from years of abuse. Um, same with quitting alcohol. People's liver begins to regenerate very quickly after they stop years of abuse of alcohol. So we're actually very lucky that nature has this resilience built into it because we can be pretty stupid with our <laughs> with our bodies right. and ourselves. And, you know, I hate- Why do you look at me when you say that? I, well, I was just going to say, I hate to give this example because it's gross, but I think a lot of people can relate to it. When you're young and you drink too much and you vomit, that's an example of resilience. <laughs> that's your body going, hey, you put too many toxins right. in here. We're going to do you a favor and just physically push it out of you because it's constantly striving for- a return to balance, a return to health, a return to stability, a return to life at its most vital. Right. And I think to bring that to kind of the human psyche and what's possible for the human mind, of course, the human mind is a part of life. It's not separate. It's not um, less a part of that drive for life, for thriving, for homeostasis. And like I said, when we look at any group of people that we might be coming to work with, no matter what kind of horrible trauma they may have been experiencing for years and years, whether that's in a, in a family, in a household with abuse, or whether that's culturally, systemically, societally with uh, less advantages and economic inequality and racism and things like that, that that inbuilt resilience to life is inside of everyone, physically, mentally, emotionally. And if we can mine for that, if we can know that, if we can look for that, then you realize that nature is on our side. Nature can help us and we can look to draw out what is already naturally in people as opposed to have to fix all the crap that was done to them or fix everything in the environment, but rather look to tapping the resilience that's already innately in people because when they rediscover that, and like I said, I've been amazed. We've worked with people who've had drug addiction, survived homelessness, severe physical abuse, and they've gone, you know what? It's true. I've always found my way. I've always gotten through it. And I didn't really know, I didn't really realize that that is built in me like it's built in everybody. And people knowing that they have that empowers them to feel a kind of natural life force of strength to be able to deal with things and um, really have the energy to create and imagine a new life for themselves right and it's not a special like you have this you're special it's like that's why we say all life it's 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 a life thing it's a universal thing and that's why 
every human has this. Every human is like, is part of this, is like, is part of nature, is nature, whatever you want to say. It's it's a built-in thing. It's just how life is. And th- there's a huge difference trying to make change with that assumption versus the assumption that that's not there. Right. You know, even if you look at nature and you look at climate change and look, look at anything, like if you assume that that it, the n- nature isn't trying, like we're not trying, it, 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 that it uh, there's always something wrong, that the things aren't working. If you live from that, you will also find solutions that that uh, work with that. So if I think there's something wrong with uh, Mara. I will try to help her based on that assumption. Right. I will start to get, whatever it is, it would be, it would be filtered through my assumption that there is something wrong there. And she doesn't have uh, inside of her what I, maybe I think I have or other humans have. Maybe I think she's the one of those who doesn't have that or whatever it is. And if you work with communities, the things we, we really, don't have to we, we can't ever trust is how it seems because it looks like when we work with certain communities that that are really struggling like oh it must be because they don't have whatever it whatever it is for you but it's not true and it's just uh an imagined thing in a way it's like that what we talked about earlier but if you like no this is nature this isn't like up for grabs this isn't like an opinion it's like we nature works like that and i'm a part of nature and they're a part of nature then first of all we connect so much better with them they're like whoa we're in the same boat rather than like here's this helper trying to help me it's like oh we feel the same right off the bat we feel the same and then they start recognizing what's already inside of them Mm -hmm. and when they're like oh i'm like everybody else I'm realizing what I already knew, what's already inside of me. Then they go out and do things and they have that feeling. They don't go then to other people like, hey, where is this thing? Like, how can it's like it's. And I'll give you a really concrete example example of this because it actually amazes me how quickly, just like I was amazed how quickly new life starts forming and the zones that were destroyed by fire, wildfire. It amazes me how quickly when resilience sprouts up in a person, they begin to be a part of the solution to problems in their community or problems in their life. So I'll give you two examples. We run um, with a partner organization, we we run retreats um, a couple of Saturdays a month for parents in the south side of Chicago who are dealing with a tremendous amount of stress because they're very concerned about the violence in their neighborhoods and keeping their kids safe and alive and out of trouble on the streets. And, you know, they've got all the issues that any human anywhere has. They're trying to deal with bills. They're trying to raise kids. They've got jobs. And then on top of it, they have this sort of constant dark cloud of if my kid goes out to play, are they never going to come back? And so there's just this enormous amount of stress that a lot of these parents are dealing with. So we do these parent retreats and it's in partnership with an organization that really brought us in because they saw that these parents are not participating in their kids' schooling. And so they're not showing up for meetings. They're not 
um, you know, partnering with the teachers about their kids' education. And in some cases, these kids need extra help and extra attention, and they're not getting it because these parents aren't showing up and helping at the school. If anything, the only time they do show up is to complain. They yell at a teacher. And and you can see how when someone's living in chronic states of stress and overwhelm, A, it's really hard to participate in anything but getting through the day. You know, you're kind of just in survival mode. So yeah, if you've got a job to go to and kids to feed and you're struggling with that already, you're not going to go over to the school for an extra hour in the day just because you feel like it. And if you do go to the school, you're going to go with a lot of stress and people who are stressed tend to be more angry, be more reactive. It's natural. We can all see that. I'm that way too. When I'm really stressed, I'm not as nice to him. So if I was a chronically stressed mom, I'm not going to be nice to the kids' teachers. You know, it's like everything looks like a problem when you're in that state. What fascinated me is these parents come to one Saturday retreat with us and we talk about this. We talk about the mind and we talk about resilience and we talk about what they have already built in them that... um, that helps them in life. And they're so open to it and hungry for it and quickly helped by it that they almost immediately start making changes. And I'll give you two examples that we heard from two different parents, one a father and one a mother that had only been to one retreat. One was a father and he came back uh, to, we, we keep it an open invitation. If they want to come to another retreat, they can. But this gentleman had only come to one retreat. He came to the second retreat and he comes in the room and he's like, you too. I don't know what I learned last Saturday, but I have been feeling so good. And he gave all these examples of ways in which he was sitting down and eating breakfast with his family. And that wasn't something he normally did. Uh, He was going for walks and enjoying himself. That wasn't something he normally did. And then he said, and I'm not smacking my kids across the room because I'm not as reactive. And I thought, that's after one day? One day. So that was one example of how he was just by... um, rediscovering something more resilient in him was operating in the world very differently. Another example was a woman. This woman was notorious, and the other other parents in the retreat talked about it, that she would come to the school and give the principal hell. She would come to the school and give the teachers hell. Like She was one of the, I think they call them accelerated parents as opposed to angry parents. (laughs) She was an accelerated parent. Um, And she would always come to the school with problems. And after she went through the retreat, something shifted in her. And she realized she wanted to be more of a participant in her child's education in a productive way. And she could suddenly see that the way she'd been showing up the school was not productive. It was not getting her what she wanted. It wasn't actually helping her kid. And it wasn't making her any friends in the school system. So this woman started... uh, productively interacting with principals and teachers, the principal and several of the teachers, so much so that she decided to kind of take a position on one of the parent committees. And, you know, long story short, over several months, she has now become highly respected as one of the most constructively involved parents. And she comes back to retreats and shares this because she said, oh, I was one of those ones that was a nightmare, but I didn't know I was just taking my stress out on everybody else. And because I don't have as much stress now, I'm showing up at the school differently and I can see ways that I can help the school. So I just give these two small examples. It was a very small amount of Mm. 
um, learning, if you will, about resilience, but it had huge implications in the people's lives in terms of how they created differently in the world because something had shifted in their mind. Right. We've had a couple of questions come in. Yeah, we Should have some we comments. Those? Yeah, let's go to the questions. Wow, time's flying. I know. We, we have another point. Okay, so. Alice did this one. Uh, how many people? Okay, so the question, I'll, I'll put it on here. So she's asking, is there a tipping point? Um, Required in system, systemic change, how many people need to reimagine a system and you're sexing for it to change in the collective conscious and not? Just I love this thing. question because I think it's a great example of the fact that we make things up. So if you Google tipping point, there is one that is more or less described like a certain percentage of people but to me it seems totally random and made up like because i think there's certain things that if they're powerful enough they catch on quickly it doesn't have to be quite as many people and then there's other things that lots of people might be exposed to or get into but they don't right actually create a tip ever right and and to me and this is just me it's like i don't know tipping point i don't know if we can ever get humanity to agree on uh an idea a specific thing in a way like let's say uh whatever if it was sexism so a tipping point assumes that you know a certain percentage will happen and then everyone will critical mass and and everyone will just live and we, we we wouldn't have any sexist uh people in the world and to me, it's just not how it looks. It looks so much more movable and dynamic in a way that it isn't like from black to white and from white to black. It's like it's, it's colors and it's always changing in a way. But if you look at the idea of, for example, um, uh, women and women's rights, you, you we can say there's a tipping point, but you could say that that's a lot of stuff that is now being very, very visible and it's changing minds. A new idea is here. Uh, like we can see the brainwashing on the wall. We can see that we believe something. Uh, uh, and I'm not, I'm not saying we as like me. I'm just saying like as humans, we made assumptions that isn't right. And we made decision and system based on that. Same with racism. And you can see it changing. But to me, it seemed like without a fundamental human understanding of that process, we will just make up something new. You know, mm-hmm. if you look at uh, things that changed and like apartheid, there was that whole situation and then that kind of changed. But now it's like almost di- different, like white people are being, uh, something happens to them now because there's this still anger built in. So if, if things aren't really fundamentally changing, we're just moving ideas around. And and if one idea is removed, if the kind of state of mind and the, the lack of understanding, it will just pop up. It will just pop it. up. It's like weed. Like you can pick this one up. But if we don't change in a more fundamental way, I guess what I'm saying, then we will probably just make up something new in a different form. Um so to me, the tipping point is interesting because like we've, we've talked about a tipping point, but to me, it seems like mm-hmm. it's kind of, it, it, it's mostly being made up and it's be hard because I think we humans mess things up because 
when we think of a tipping point, we probably think like a tipping point of people who think like me. And that's extremely hard to not do that once you start trying to help people to not have it be contaminated by our own thing. But this this is the other thing I want to say, because I think this is a really cool question, is anything that has eventually changed started with one mind. Right. It didn't start with, oh, thank goodness we got to three trillion people and that's what created the tipping point. Like, I think for the individual, what sparks hope in people when we start looking at the human mind is it's like, oh, why not me? I could be the person that sees something that becomes the initial domino that like if you look at a Rosa Parks who refused to sit in the back of the bus. Yeah, you could say that eventually there came a tipping point after, well, we're still in the midst of multiple tipping points around racism in America. It's not like, you know, thanks to Rosa Parks, it became visible that making people of a certain color skin sit in a certain place on the bus wasn't going to work and didn't make sense and was inhumane. And there were a lot of other kind of dominoes that tipped off because of that. But we would argue today that that tipping point is still in the process of happening because there is not an equality. But that one person's mind and therefore behavior was a participant in leading to change. So as opposed to kind of thinking, you know, what is the mass? What is the number? How do we get there? What I love is anyone can be a part of starting it or anyone can be a part of accelerating it. Yeah. Yeah. So what I think matters more is that you, Shannon Cooper, see, oh, I am my own tipping point in my life. Do I still believe this or do I see something different or do I see a way to make a change? Because we don't have anything but our own mind. And we go into this in more depth in the online course, but when people realize, oh, that can seem daunting. It's like, oh, you mean I can't fix everything out there? But then that's also incredibly freeing and inspiring because you realize, oh my gosh, I only have my mind anyway. I can't do the whole rest of the world. But what I can do in my mind can be a tipping point, a catalyst for me that becomes a tipping point of some kind in the world. So you don't have to worry about masses. You don't have to worry about numbers. You can just look to, well, what can I see? What can I do? How can I be a participant? And you have no idea if 200, 300 years from now, people aren't going to look back and Shannon Cooper is going to be the next Rosa Parks, you know? (laughs) And I guarantee you, Rosa Parks did not know it in that moment. She wasn't thinking, you know what? I'm going to end racism right here and now. Maybe she was. I don't know, but I don't think so. I think she was just like, I'm fed up and I don't believe this. I don't believe in this thought that somebody put in place that said we have to sit here and they have to sit there. I don't believe that. Right. And so that was the beginning of change. Right. And it and it also caught fire because it became, it became a story. It became a story of change. It could also just be not known about uh, a woman who just sat in the back and then, you know, that was it. But- it changed. We got what got magnetic hub. So we have zero minutes left to answer some pretty profound questions. Well, let's go a little over though. Okay, I was gonna say, what do you want to do? Go over? Yeah. Or make a second unless one? you guys want to um, leave, we could just. We leave. won't be offended if people start dropping off. We understand no. some of you. We'll we'll send everyone the recording and we'll send you the invitation for the the next the one. next webinar. So. Where we'll just kind of con- continue like this. I want to. I want to. I want to ask her a couple more. Yeah, yeah, go for it. All right. Magnetic Hub says, uh, also, is there a collective consciousness 
are cultural and societal norms real or imagined? That's a profound question. I thought I was thinking. That's a, that's a lot of... I mean, this would fall into the... Um, well, I guess everything we've talked about so far would fall in this category, but I would say, um, I, to quote Big Lebowski, as like kind of just your opinion man. So I only have my opinion man. <laughs> I only have... Right. I don't think that I, as a human, could say I know for certain whether or not we have a collective consciousness, but I do find it fascinating and it feels real and actually common sense in a way that all energy is connected so I think whether you want to go down the physics rabbit hole of how they've begun to prove that, um, things like, um, you know, that if you s split an atom and you do something you, and you send one to Australia and one's here and you do something to this one, it shows up in that one. Ooh, how's that happen? That's my physics class for you real quick. <laughs> um, but whether it's, whether it's, that or um, just the fact that, you know, I, I do believe that whether we can see it or intellectually grasp it or not, that, of course, what grew you inside the womb of your mother and what grew me inside and what's grow like that it is all life and that it is all, you know, it's so cheesy, but people refer to like, how does an acorn become an oak tree? Well, how does it? sperm and an egg become a human. I mean, I think at some fundamental point, we have to be willing to see that there's an energy behind life. And it does appear to me that that is connected. So I don't know why we couldn't have some sort of collective consciousness. And yet, when I watch documentaries about, um, you know, extremists or serial killers, and I think, well, is that a part of my consciousness? Am I a part of that? I don't know. Like, it's all... I'm not doing a very good job at answering this because it's but definitely a, over my I, head. But. I think that's a good sign because it's such a uh, it's such a big question that it will only be like almost like a, at a feeling level, and you can kind of see patterns, you can see nature, and you can see yourself. But to me, we wouldn't be in integrity if we set a black and white answer to this because it's just. We're not, you know, either, you know, we're not astrophysicists and we're not enightened. So we can just give our, our best answer to this. But that's how it But seems I do to know, it. like, you know, for the people that happen to have read my book, like what I talk about when I was held up at gunpoint. And in that moment, I had a very profound experience of feeling like the separateness of the ideas that normally run through my head. So if you think about you and your everyday life, it's like, okay, what am I going to have for breakfast? And then after breakfast, I'm going to go to the office and then I've got this meeting and that meeting. And you kind of live in this fragmented self-chatter that's kind of like dividing up your day and your experience of life. And not surprisingly, when I got held up at gunpoint and I realized that there was a weapon against my head and none of those thoughts seemed relevant in that moment. And so I had this experience of going, completely quiet. And without that chitter chatter of my head, I just felt pure energy. Like I was just life. I was just alive. There was no Mara filtering the experience, commenting on the experience, figuring out what I needed to do later that night. It was like, oh no, right now, just in this moment, there's nothing else. And what 
struck me about that moment was that I've never felt more connected to the energy of all things, including the man who was holding a gun to my head and the tree that was on the sidewalk next to us. And I just remember in that moment feeling nothing but this one continuous flow that me, the guy holding the gun, the tree, were all one. And I certainly don't walk around in that experience all the time, but I can never forget that experience. It was a very profound experience. And like you said, I'm not enlightened. I'm not a scientist, but I'm an ordinary human that did have an experience of feeling like when my mind went completely blank, really what was there, all that was left without my little Mara thinking was the energy of life. And there was absolutely without a shadow of a doubt, a feeling of connectedness to all of it, that I was no different than the tree, that I was no different than the man. And I, again, I don't have anything to say about it other than that, that I think ordinary humans have often had experiences. I'm not unique. I'm not special. There's been a lot of people, you know, my dad can tell you about the time when he sat at my grandfather's deathbed. It was his father-in-law, not his father. And he had this very profound experience out of nowhere, and he doesn't know why, of suddenly feeling in his father-in-law's body and, un- and feeling at one with the experience he was having of dying. So much so that it made my dad kind of come out of the, the room just sobbing because he never experienced something like that before. The ability to be in a shared experience with a human and know even though he'd never experienced anything like before, never believed in anything like that before, but to know, oh, I had the experience of being one with a a dying person. So to me, those are little signs or hints that there's more going on the behind the scenes of life that connects us than we can see in our ordinary everyday lives because we're living in the... uh, very natural, normal kind of thought-created version of our existence. And our own thoughts are unique and separate. That was the point we didn't quite get to in this this webinar, but maybe we can just jam it in there right now, is that as people think, they have their own thought-created experience and version of reality, and that creates a separateness in a way. It creates a Mara bubble. So I wake up and I don't have a shared experience of life with my husband. It's not like Adik and I walk around in our marriage or in our business only seeing exactly the same thing. We're one all the time. (laughs) No, not at all. Maybe the first two weeks. (laughs) But, you know, I'm in my little bubble making up my Mara world and he's in his little bubble making up his Adik world. But I think what is fascinating is that many, many humans, my dad, me, you, we can all point to different experiences where the separateness of our thought systems kind of faded to the background for whatever reason, often in profound moments, but not necessarily have to be. And we realize, oh my God, beyond my thoughts and beyond the separateness of my little bubble, I am you, you are me, we are all an energy. So that, I don't need to be a physicist. I just need to be a human to know yeah, there's that's a, true. There's a, yeah, I've had personal experience of it, and I'm not full of shit when I say it. It is just something that I've personally experienced. So I can say for me, I can't explain it, but I do know it to be true. Right. But at the same time, which like we, as Mara said, we didn't get to, we are human. And like we trying to escape from that and create a belief of, 
I am collective consciousness and only that. It's just like, it's, we are human. We're human. I do have my bubble. I, I we have a it. bubble. Like, it, <laughs> and, and that kind of yin and yang or like dynamicness of like, we're, we are that big thing, but we're also human gives a very, like, is a huge fr- freedom. It, it really helps people. Like, if you really want to be practical and help people in the world, having one without the other, to us, working with real communities flies right in. Like, you just smash into the wall because it goes nowhere. You need to see that there's that there's something beyond a person. There's something beyond our thought system. Uh, but we also are human, you know? Yeah. And and that kind of dance is just uh, amazing. It really, really helps people. And I love working with teenagers for that exact reason. You know, we work with teens here in Chicago. And, you know, if we sat down with these kids and said, well, you're really just an energy, they'd be like, what? And why do I care? Right. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> but yet in talking with them about their personal worlds and how understanding their mind and their thoughts can help expand their personal world, eventually they do get to the point where they see, hey, you know, this is interesting. I'm realizing, like, we had a very cool conversation in this studio with several of the Rebels for Peace, the youth that we work with, and they all talked about how they can so see that, you know, discrimination and stereotype is so made up and that, it goes all directions that, you know, it's not just racism towards young black men, which they happen to be having this conversation, but it's also, you know, their stereotypes about white people or Latino people or young people versus old people. And, you know, they had a very cool conversation about how really unhelpful and limiting and made up that is. So to your point about are all social norms just made up, like, I think it's fascinating that, as people begin to learn about the thought-created nature of our realities, they start to see there's so much that we make up that's not really doing us any favors, and it really just is made up. So in their own way, those teens are beginning to point to the fact that beyond these stereotypes, beyond these concepts that we've invented that separate us, we're all one. I mean, that was exactly, remember what they said mm-hmm. sitting around this table? We're the same. They were basically saying we're all one, we're all the same, we're all a collective consciousness, we're all the energy of life, but just in there. But also we're all one because we're all doing the same thing. They were like, the cops are doing the same thing as I'm doing. That means we're one. I'm judging them and they're judging me. Right, they're all in the the same same. boat. There's no one up here. We're all doing the same thing and we're all kind of a little bit crazy, you know? Yeah. Oh my God, we have so many questions and and comments. I think we're going to wrap it up, but these are really beautiful. All right, we promise we're going to take a note out of these comments and we'll either address them in the next webinar or yes. do like a pure Q&A thing. Yes. Because these are really, really amazing. Yeah. Thank you everyone for joining us today. Thank you so much. It was it's really been so fun, fun having you all here and we will send out another um, newsletter and Facebook invitation for the next one happening next yes. week. And or- hopefully you'll you'll come and add all these. Well, I'm serious. These These are so good, these questions. We gotta do it next time. Sounds good. Alright, have a wonderful day, evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye bye.